Kia ora everyone. Uh, so to get underway, in March 1931, the Auckland Star's long-lived Labour correspondent, he frequently alluded to his political activities in the 1890s, wrote of public feeling in Sydney last Saturday evening running very high and listening to the Sydney station 2FC relaying from Paddington Town Hall, the chief polling centre for East Sydney, one could hear the cheers and frenzied shouts that acclaimed each return coming in which proclaimed an increase in the Labour majority. I think that's as good a way as any of introducing the theme of this talk and that it poses many more questions than answers. How long has it since such an event, this was a by-election, attracted attention on this side of the Tasman? How many people would be able to name any Premier of an Australian state today? How useful to be reminded in the pre-internet but wireless days of the time, it was possible to listen to radio broadcasts from the other side of the Tasman. But, and the, this is the question that's most relevant to my talk today, what was the election about and why did it attract such interest in New Zealand? I'll come at the answer to that question in a roundabout route, but first to set some limits. Um, a quick reaction, as it were, quiz on Australian events and New Zealand in the 1930s, especially 1930 to 35, I don't think would come up with anything depression related. My guess, and you might like to f scroll through your mind what you would think about if you were suddenly told to think about Australia in the early 30s, my guess is that amongst the things that would come to mind um, would be the following. The Sydney Harbour Bridge, which was completed, not completed obviously in this particular image with the plane flying overhead, but was opened at the end of March 1932. The Southern Cross, Charles Kingsford Smith's plane, its first big flight across the Tasman in 1928 and others in 1933. Huge crowds, 35,000 were estimated to greet it when it arrived in Christchurch in 1928 the first time that there had been an air connection across uh, fr from outside New Zealand into the country. And the famous horse Far Lap. This is not a precursor to Nancy Swarbrick's talk in two months, but I like the image because it, as you will know, there's a fascinating thing about Far Lap, how the skeleton is in New Zealand, but other bits of it are in Australia. And here, someone I think it's at Te Papa has reconstructed the skeleton, unbeknownst to the uh, uh, fellow holding the horse's bridle, to show exactly how it fitted with an image of the horse from the time. Uh, and Farlap died uh, in, in mysterious circumstances on the 5th of April 1932. So again, it's a sort of a landmark event of this particular era, but not one that really has much to do with the Depression. <laughs> So I'm not going to be talking about those kinds of things, but that's a way of reminding us how much of life is not captured when you put a political frame around it. Uh, not that politics is entirely absent from any of those episodes, but it's not politics that I'm going to go into today. In this talk, I'm going to re narrow even somewhat further. I'm going to concentrate on the middle ground of politics and leave to one side two areas that have been more thoroughly discussed. The activities of communists on either side of the Tasman, their interrelations, thanks in part to the work by Kerry Taylor and by James Bennett, including the Gerald Griffin 
Egon Kish episode in late 1934 and 35, which I can explain to you if you're interested, but had its entertaining side, and the ties or lack of them amongst radical conservative groups such as the All, Australia, All for Australia League, the New Guard and the New Zealand Legion, which have been tackled by Matt Cunningham, for whom indeed I'm indebted to that term, radical conservative. And looking at this middle ground, we can canvas, I think, three main possibilities for charting this trans-Tasman connection. And, oh, sorry. I'll, okay. The first one is what I would call cause and effect. That is something that happened in Australia had an effect in New Zealand. It could also be the other way around, but today I'm going to mostly focus on that line of transmission. Another possibility is that the circumstances were quite different and what happened here was completely different from what happened in Australia and played out in different ways and there are some interesting examples of that. And the third is what I call parallelism where you have a very similar phenomena but you can't actually say that this represents any kind of causal relationship. I hope these don't sound too abstract but they, are, they do open up ways of looking interestingly at what was going on and not being tempted to jumble it all into one kind of category of trans-Tasman relations and influences. So in the body of the talk, I'm not going to give an actual narrative of what happened as between Australia and New Zealand, but focus on these three possibilities. But I think a little bit of a narrative is probably helpful. I'm so immersed in this subject that I have difficulty thinking about what people generally remember or know about it and what they don't. And so please don't hesitate to ask for clarification at some point. So, a brief narrative account. Between 1929 and 31, the Depression was much, much more severe in Australia than in New Zealand. This played out both economically and politically. Economically, Australia had had difficult times in the 1928-29 production season, as the way the world works in the Southern Hemisphere, of course. That is, before the Wall Street crash, the building boom went bust, and Australia's two main commodities, wool and wheat, both saw massive price collapses. Whereas in New Zealand, wool was initially by far the most hard hit, the other major commodities not quite so much. And Australia was unable to borrow in London, the usual source of its funds, from the middle of 1929, again before the Wall Street crash. The currency lost value, economic turmoil fed on and compounded political turmoil. Labour governments in Canberra, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia all in office at the outset of the Depression or elected soon after it, as in uh, Jack Lang's massive election victory in New South Wales in October 1930 when Labor got 55% of the popular vote, were confronted by calls from financial and commercial interests for deflation, calls which collided, of course, with fervently held Labor principles. The turmoil played out as much within the Labour movement as between it and non-Labour political forces. The movement split asunder in early 1931, the time of that East Sydney by-election. The election, And in the election itself, general election held in December 1931, Labour was destroyed as a political force in the federal parliament and lost office in all three Labour states over the next few months, most dramatically so in the case of New South Wales in May 1932. Sorry, this is racing through it, but it's just to give you the kind of bare bones of it. Through 1931, conditions in New Zealand caught up, as it were, with Australia, with the collapse of other commodity prices and soaring unemployment, and that through a summer, which is traditionally the time when unemployment actually tends to abate. After a set of controversial economic, but the political turmoil was not comparable. After a set of controversial economy measures were taken in March and April, inaction set in. 
and it was only after a coalition government was formed in September 1931 that you get another kind of surge of policy making. In the second phase, New Zealand saw more turmoil than Australia. The condition of the unemployed reached a crisis in autumn of 1932, far lap time, erupting in a wave of demonstrations and rioting in the main centres, well known obviously to you people here. Whilst the government-owned supporters split over what now seems the arcane issue of the exchange rate, it was raised, as the terminology of the time had it, that is devalued, in January 1933. Through these years, the points of commonality between Australia and New Zealand were much less. The good ship SS Australia had sailed into calmer waters, some might say the quiet of the grave, to mix the metaphors, but also economic indicators turned upwards in Australia in the middle of 1932, about a year earlier than in New Zealand. In the third phase from 1935 on, both countries were in recovery mode. The election of a Labour government in New Zealand reinvigorated not so much trans-Tasman ties in general, but it was a reminder of past Labour governments in Australia and incumbent ones in the three states which had not had Labour governments when the election, the depression broke. So you get a complete turnaround in the Australian state politics. Okay, so that's a lot of history to digest in a short time, but if you get that notion of three phases in your head, that's perhaps helpful. And there is a kind of a relationship between those and my earlier concepts, the cause and effect, the lack of common ground and the parallelism, and you'll perhaps see that as we go through. So I now want to turn to the first one, which is the notion of cause and effect. And it may seem odd to stress this in this first period when I'm saying that Australia actually had a much more difficult circumstances than New Zealand, and therefore you might think, well, that implies that there isn't a causal chain. But in fact, some of it, I think, is perhaps what you'd call a demonstration effect rather than strictly a cause effect. And the first one I want to mention, you'll find I'm very attached to the exchange rate. I know it's a very obscure subject, but it's, it's very, very important in the Depression. So you have to get your head around it if you understand what people often felt very passionate about. And uh, it, it, is, uh, it is innately interesting, but I have difficulty <laughs> convincing people of this. Um, as I've already mentioned, Australia's currency lost value in the early stages of the Depression. In January 1931, Australian buyers of sterling in London had to pay £130 to get £100. Or if you like, they paid £100 to get £75. Instead of the £100 was regarded as the norm. The notion that a pound was a pound was a pound, wherever you were in the empire, was a very, very deep-seatedly held view. Any deviation from it was seen as abnormal. And so there was, and it's a fascinating thing where a public perception collides with what you might call a, an actual, the realities of the circumstances. So um, in practice, all through the 1920s, the banks trading in Australia, if their holdings of currency in London were being depleted, would quote the pound at a premium. But it was usually a relatively modest one, like 5% or 10%. It's a bit like the sort of thing you know you have to pay if you take foreign money out of an ATM overseas, the sort, those sorts of things the banks throw at you. Um, and invariably in those days it was pretty much the same premium whether you were in Australia or New Zealand, but in 1930-31 for the first time a gap opened up. As the rate for Australian buyers was raised to 110, 125, then 130, the rate for New Zealand buyers of sterling rose much more slowly to 105, 107.5, then 110. New Zealanders patted themselves on the back about this because the higher the rate, the more problematic economic conditions were considered to be. But 
and this is the interesting cause and effect thing, a high rate had one signal advantage, which we still recognize today. By that, of course, I mean what we would call a devalued rate. It meant more money in the hand for anyone being paid in London who wanted to use the money in New Zealand or Australia, in a word, an exporter. And in that case, in New Zealand, it meant primary producers. So they started lobbying for the high exchange, saying New Zealand should have the same high exchange as Australia and used the Australian example as a precedent. And in this way, there was a clear transmission of influence of events in Australia on the politics of New Zealand. So that's the first interesting cause and effect. The next one is what I call the prejudice against the Labour Party. The conservative press in New Zealand was systematically hostile to the Labour Party. This is hardly news. At the economic and political crisis deepened in Australia in 1931, the press supplemented its habitual critique of Labour with scandalised headlines and editorials about the actions of the inflationists, as the Labour politicians were called in Australia, or the repudiationists, that is, politicians who advocated that Australia should not service its London debt, should not pay interest on it, of whom Jack Lang, the Australian New South Wales politician, was the most prominent. So this is the, an example of the kind of headlines. Scullin was the Labour Prime Minister. And all the headlines, these are from the Auckland Star because you can see that online, they're very loaded kind of headlines like this. Um, basically saying Labour in Australia is going the wrong way, it's taking the country to perdition. And that, that last one was what indeed was going to happen later in 1931. So this put a huge amount of pressure on the Labour Party in New Zealand not to be seen to be irresponsible, inflationist as the term was, repudiationist. And so you get editorials like this in the Evening Post. So Holland, being the Labour Party leader, is conceding the need for a balanced budget and careful to avoid the possibility of being seen as in the same camp as people like Lang uh, or other prominent Labour politicians at the time in Australia like Theodore, the finance minister. And this, uh, the kind of what you might call the coup de grace of this particular, what you call propaganda campaign, was when the Government Bank of New South Wales closed its doors in April 1931. This was a kind of a version of the post office savings bank so it, was, it had masses of small depositors and right from the time Labour was elected in New South Wales in October 1930 it came under sustained pressure as to was, was your money safe with the socialist government in control and uh, in, when, when it reached the crisis on the April the 20th deposits of £108,000 were overshadowed by withdrawals of £283,000. Two days later, £73,000 was deposited and £1.53 million was withdrawn. So unsurprisingly, on that day, the bank closed its doors. And this was widely seen as in, in the press as a demonstration of the fiscal ineptitude and risks of a Labour government such as that in New South Wales. And it was used in election publicity uh, in New Zealand in 1931 and also in 1935, as in this example here. It's obviously, as you can judge from the date, it didn't convince enough voters to sway opinion, but the fact that it was used four years later was indicative of the kind of way it was remembered, and particularly because it was a bank of small depositors. And, and immediately after it closed, those deposits were frozen for several months until the thing got sorted out. So you didn't have access to them. In the end, people did get their money back. 
so there was a kind of a happy ending. So that's, that's a second kind of clear cause and effect. Um, another one is immigration restriction. And this is a kind of an interesting one because it feeds into a larger story about control of, of labor. And in this case, the lack of, there is a lack of synchronicity between the downturns in the two countries drove this second, this is the second act passed in the emergency parliament that met in March 1931, immigration amendment. Uh, it, is always, it was passed in a day. It's always significant when an act is passed in a day because it basically means there's a, cons a cross-party consensus about it. And that consensus was because on the Reform and United side, people were concerned about unemployed Australians becoming a charge on the Australian New Zealand taxpayer, and Labor uh, MPs were concerned about competition for jobs. So what's interesting, as you'll see from the, if you look down to the bottom, is that this Immigration Act required even people of British birth and heritage to get a permit to enter New Zealand. And it, was, it stayed valid for four years. The irony was that just at the time they passed it, it really became irrelevant because the unemployment levels in New Zealand became so high and the, uh, the uh, relief rates had, were cut in February that in fact there was no movement of unemployed Australians into New Zealand. But it's an interesting example of, of, of the effect of the transformation. And the other one I wanted to talk about was the economists. Uh, in terms of cause and effect. The community of economists in this time was an Australasian one. Economic Record, the quarterly journal which started publication in 1925, covered developments in both countries, and most of New Zealand's academic economists, Tocker, Fisher, Belshaw, for example, published regularly in it. Australia, Australia's controversial and mostly deflationary premier's plan of economic recovery, which was agreed to by the state and federal governments in June 31, owed much to advice from economists, and particularly this man, Douglas Copeland, who was New Zealand born and raised, but was a professor of economics at Melbourne. So he was, he was writing articles in the New Zealand press in April 31. He was behind, lobbying for this particular plan uh, in in June, and then he was over in New Zealand talking to politicians all through August and September 1931. He sat on the Economist Committee that met in February 1932, which effectively devised a New Zealand version of the Premier's Plan, what we think of, some of you may have heard of, the National Expenditure Adjustment Act, it was called, of that, that time. So there's an interesting causal effect there from the politicking behind the Australian plan in 1931 and the New Zealand plan, if you want to call it that, although the term was never used in 1932. Um, but it's interesting too where you think there might be some influence but it doesn't appear to be the case. Um, the tariff, just very briefly, one of the ways the Australians dealt with the downturn was to raise the tariff massively in 1930. It was aimed to do two somewhat contradictory things, raise more money for the government, higher tariffs, higher revenue, discourage imports, which of course would have the opposite effect, but would mean that the balance of payments would be a little healthier and was also advantageous to Australian uh, manufacturers. New Zealand did not have a strong protectionist lobby. Oddly enough, it was strongest in two primary commodities, wheat and timber, much less strong in anything else. And also, New Zealanders were much more alert and concerned about the possibility of stabilising their economic relationship with Great Britain. And tariffs would be seen by British exporters as a hostile move. So there was much less of this. There was not really a tariff movement in New Zealand, anything like you got in Australia. Secondly, to go into the uh, sustenance and the 1932 disturbances, this is an interesting one, and I think, and it's one of the ones where I think thinking trans-Tasman 
Tasmanially, Tas Tasmanly, is helpful in understanding what's going on. Some of, most of you, or some of you will be aware of Forbes' well-known statement when he returned from London in January 1931 that no sustenance would be paid to unemployed workers without work being done in exchange. And this remained a kind of a mantra of unemployment relief in New Zealand. It's often cited as one of the ways in which the government was particularly unfeeling and uh, callous towards the unemployed. What's interesting in exploring this, and I can't say I've quite got to the bottom of it, is this, this uh, regime never operated in any Australian state, so far as I can tell. Australian states always paid sustenance, and sustenance was in fact so much a part of the system that it, it was, the term was Australianized as susso. The susso people would talk about. And I've not, uh, someone may have an opinion of this, but I've never come across that term in New Zealand. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for this, and this is a bit speculative, is, is the nature of local government in Australia. In many parts of Australia, local government was, was almost non-existent. And that meant that you did not really have a system for organising relief schemes in the way that you had in New Zealand. And you also did not have the same sort of system for distributing rations. In fact, rations in rural Australia were usually distributed from police stations. And that may seem very odd, but if you think about the notion that what you're concerned about is almost a law and order issue, you've got these men wandering around the countryside, it's logical that the police should be the ones making sure that A, they're either looked after or they're moved on or whatever. And that seems to have been what happened. But one of the results of it in New Zealand was that when Forbes was saying that, he wasn't in a sense saying there's not going to be any sustenance. What he was saying was it's the job of the hospital boards. And what you got in that first 18 months of unemployment relief was a classic bureaucratic bungle whereby neither the unemployment board nor the hospital boards wanted to take responsibility for unemployed men when they were not working which in practice was the case because there was not enough money to have them all in work. And this really is one of the major cries and calls during the demonstrations in 1932, almost more than anything else. There was a thing called the Stand Down Week, which one of you, some of you may know about. That is, you could get work for three weeks, but under no circumstances would you get work for the fourth week. You might not get much work in the three weeks, but you'd get something. In the fourth week, if you're unemployed, you're expected to go to the hospital board to get rations. Go to the hospital board, they'd say, you're unemployed, you're not a charitable case, go back to the unemployment board, back and forth, back and forth. This went on all through the summer of 1931-32, and, and the government simply didn't address it. You can, it's very interesting to track the discussions, and they would basically just run into the sand, and, and the momentum and built up, and I think it was a very large part of the anger that built up particularly amongst the unemployed. I mean, it's a different issue from some of the other things about the Arbitration Act, obviously, the wage cuts. But for the unemployed, there was a really big thing about the stand-down week. And you can see it in the rhetoric and the speeches uh, in those autumn months of 1932, which led to these riots. Th there's a wrinkle in the story, which I'm not going to go into, which complicates it, but I think the general point is, is a very valid one. And it's something, as I say, where you really have to be attuned to the fact that the particular situation... In New the, the New Australian cities didn't actually see a riot quite like the Auckland one. There were lots of other ones, and there was some interesting one happened in Perth, one in Adelaide, but nothing quite like what happened here, and I do think this is a large part of why it is the case. So that's a, an example where the very difference actually gives you some illumination. Um, I'll skip the exchange rate, what about that? Um, that's just a wonderful headline from Truth. 
uh, after the uh, exchange rate was, I always thought the first black budget was 1958, but Truth evidently has a different idea. Uh, that's Coates in the middle, the new Minister of Finance, and it, it's just an example of the opposition there was to, to that going on. Um, and uh, Douglas credited the whole movement for monetary reform and expansion, which was a very pervasive thing in both countries, but I don't think there's, you can't really say it migrated from Australia to New Zealand. The lines of transmission, if there were any, were from overseas, from the origins of the movement in England and very strong in Canada into both countries. It was a much more vigorous movement in New Zealand than in Australia, mainly on account of the strength and the plight of the dairy industry. And indeed, the strongest advocate of it was the Auckland Farmers Union and their newspaper, Farming First, from which this cartoon comes. Uh, and they've universalised their plight to take in the whole world. It's not just the dairy farmers of New Zealand, but the globe who want to uh, see a reflationary policy adopted. The Labour Party, as many of you will know, had a somewhat complex relationship with the, the movement in New Zealand, much more so than elsewhere in Australia. You, if you were a member of a social, you, if you're in the Labour Party, you could not join the social credit movement. They were very strong on that, keeping that separation. And the English Labour Party more or less adopted the same position. The New Zealanders were a little more ambiguous, although in the end they kind of took that stance. And just <laughs> finally on this kind of curiosity one is this thing about a man called JWS MacArthur. How many people here are aware of MacArthur? Okay, so a few specialists, that's good. MacArthur was basically, well, he would debate it, but he was basically a financial crook of a kind that we're not perhaps so unfamiliar with over the last three to four years. In 1932, economist Horace Belcher and his colleague F.B. Stevens wrote an article on the scams carried out by land development companies. Partly as a result of this, which is basically a way of getting money off people to say, look, this land's going to increase in value. Uh, the people who promoted it then sold out. And, and the land was discovered to never going to be acquire any value. Uh, in 1933, the government initiated an investigation of these practices and similar ones by investment trusts, which came on a trail leading to the doorstep of a group of companies under the control of Auckland businessman J.W.S. MacArthur, who had, however, by the time the trail got close, relocated much of his business activity to Sydney. And some of the story is there. Um, on a single night, early in August 1934, laws were passed, this is the interesting part related to the story, laws were passed simultaneously in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Canberra and Wellington, closing down MacArthur's companies. It was all synchronised and it was done because they worried that if they tried to do it in one place he would shift his money somewhere else. Michael Joseph Savage, who was sitting like all the other MPs, seemingly stunned in the Parliament as this legislation raced through. Uh, said, I suppose these governments have come to the conclusion that it is not much use trying to yard a bunny if they block up one hole in the burrow and fail to watch the others. And this was a reasonable comment about what was going on with MacArthur. The thing then played out over the next eight months, but it was, it was one woman had invested, and this is an interesting comment on you know where money was in the Depression, she had invested £29,000 uh, which is a bit like saying something like $3 million with MacArthur's company uh, and then discovered that basically she had bought nothing. In her case, the reason we know about that is because it was she went to court, she actually had the money paid back. But you think about someone who has 29,000, what, pe what people were doing was selling shares in good companies but with much lower dividends and returns. Does this sound familiar? And going for someone who was promising much, much higher returns. But it's also a comment on how much money was lying around 
at a time of acute depression and not being used to promote employment or whatever, but was actually, in this case, channeled into speculation. But from this story, the interesting thing is this coordination in five different parliaments at the same time. But I don't see it as cause and effect. I mean, it's, it's more a comment on the ease with which money and business move back and forth across the Tasman. So we come to the last section, which is what I've called parallelism. And um, I'm going to look at just three things quickly here. Um, the first one, law and order. This is really about, we have, as people would know, after the riots in Auckland in 1932, the government passed the Public Safety Conservation Act very swiftly. And if you're wondering why it's so swift, one of the reasons was there were heaps of precedents. This was the Victoria one which was passed after a police strike, no less. The interesting of the New Zealand one was it was passed to give the police more power. Uh, the Australian one was passed after the police misbehaved, if you might say. Um, the South Australia one, you see the bold thing, Public Safety Preservation Act. The Queensland one. In that case, the trigger is very obvious by the name of the, the act. And you get some of the uh, preambles are much more onerous. Uh, South Australia, it's the governor of South Australia, but King's Most Excellent Majesty in Victoria and in Queensland. New Zealand is nice to feel as a somewhat more austere, modest uh, introduction. But the act and the wording in this initial sections is identical. Now, this is not cause and effect. Uh, in fact, if there's any cause and effect, it's from the, what you might call the Mother Act, which doesn't fit into the story, which is the United Kingdom one from 1920, which all the others were modelled on. They're all basically dealing with similar circumstances. That is what the Conservative governments would see as industrial or related disturbances and wishing to acquire some additional legislative um, tools uh, to uh, address it. You'll also know that in New Zealand, the public safety conservation was never actually used until the Labour government introduced it at the outbreak of war in 1939. That was the first time, and I think it was used again during the waterfront dispute. Someone's going to be able to endorse that. So this, to me, is a very interesting case of parallelism and a case where you, st you step outside the national framework and you kind of see things that help you understand the uh, circumstances of, of the country in, in a slightly wider context. The thing about Labour leaders is kind of interesting too. Um, it's, it's a different kind of parallelism, I guess. Here's, here's an example. A leader who was Victoria-born, Irish Catholic background, largely self-taught, no children, ill health, massive electoral victory, unhappy political ending. Okay, so who's that? We know who that is in New Zealand, don't we? It's this man. But the, and happy meaning, you know, it's not that great to die in office with your party divided over a, an errant political colleague. But it's also exactly true of this man, James Scullin. All those attributes apply to him as well. Uh, and so there you have a thing like, you know, I've got David here, so I don't want to suggest that biography is not important, but it's interesting to place people in context and indeed, you know, to place Norman Kirk against Gough Whitlam would be a similarly interesting kind of exercise, context and individuals and how they play out. Scullin, in a sense, had a happier afterlife than Savage, if only because he lived. Uh, and he played a role in the Curtin government in the 1940s and, and a variety of other circumstances. So I don't want to kind of overdo this, but again, you know, you lift yourself up over the national horizon. I'm not suggesting I'm the first person to do that, and you get these interesting things. Similarly, these two, charismatic, divisive, ended up in the political wilderness, outlived his political enemies. Jack Lang, 99. 
you got to. This was the very divisive Premier of New South Wales, uh, who was in the end chucked out by the Governor and just after all the turmoil in New Zealand in, June, in May 1932 and then massively defeated in June. The Labour Party in Australia was crippled by this division for the next 10 years, really. And of course, his counterpart, John A. Lee, who also outlived his opponents and therefore got to write the history first. Parallel policies, just very briefly, an interesting example, New Zealand Labour, hardly a complete uh, canvas of what the New Zealand Labour Party did, the 40-hour week, restore industrial conciliation arbitration, restore public service work club. Have you seen that before? New South Wales Labour 1930, restore the 44-hour week. They didn't get to 40, restore industrial conciliation, restore public service wage cuts, absolutely identical. But again, you can't, it's, you're really talking about similar political formations generating similar political activities. The bridge was completed and it was opened, I think it was March 29th, 1932. Wonderful demonstration of Australian motorised transport there. Maybe even a Holden somewhere. Um, so that brings me to the end and I don't really have <laughs> any developed conclusions in the sense that I think a case can be made, and I guess I've been making it for all of these three approaches. You can see cause and effect. You can see circumstances where you have to be very alert to the individual, individual situations of the two countries. You can see examples of parallelism. And so I'm not going to come up crafting with a grand theory about this. I, I want to add one further point, though, for researchers, and that's the value of looking at Australian states when we think about what's going on in Australia. Last year's, I think it was last year's, Stout Centre conference on the colonies, which deliberately lo looked at Australia and New Zealand in terms of the 19th century colonies, could as equally be applied to the early 20th century. In 1930, the Australian Commonwealth was only 30 years old, so that its formation was within the life of most memory of most adults. Um, and the states were only just beginning to lose financial autonomy. As I've indicated, they, they were responsible for large areas of law and order, unemployment assistance and that kind of thing. And uh, so I think rather than with the Commonwealth as a whole, there's lots of fruitful insights to be gained by looking uh, more closely at the states. But that's another talk and another tale. Thank you very much. Go on.